everybody. Welcome to The Back Room. I'm Andy Ostroy. Very excited for today's guest today. She is Caitlin Keating, film producer, and uh, her film Take Care of Maya is on Netflix. We will chat with Caitlin in just a moment. But first, thank you for tuning in today. We appreciate you listening, and we'd love to hear your comments. So email us at backroomandy at gmail.com and or post on our social media, and we'll read some feedback next time. And if you like the podcast, please follow or subscribe and rate and review, and you'll be notified every time we post a new episode. So Caitlin Keating is a New York City-based filmmaker, journalist, and co-founder of Wise Fool Films. She produced Take Care of Maya, which premiered at the Tribeca Film Festival and was released on Netflix in June of 2023. Previously, Caitlin spent over a decade as a reporter and writer at People Magazine, where she covered hundreds of exclusive human interest and crime stories across the country. She's also hosted People's first episodic human interest series and has contributed to the New York Times, among many other leading publications. She's also appeared on NBC's Today, ABC's Good Morning America, investigative discoveries hit show People Magazine Investigates, and People Now. Caitlin, welcome into the back room. Thank you so much for having me. I want to talk about the amazing film, Take Care of Maya, and I want to talk about the film business and documentaries, but I just want to peel the onion back a little bit, talk about you, your background, what kind of home you grew up in, what inspirations you had as a young person. Were you always involved and interested in the arts and film? Like when you were a little kid, did did you want to be a filmmaker and a producer or did you want to be an astronaut or a a chef or what? And is there any connective tissue between how you were as a child, a young person, with who you became as an adult? That's a great question. Um, One, I'm still working through in therapy for sure, right? (laughs) Welcome to the club. (laughs) Uh, Exactly. Um, No, these podcasts feel like a therapy session half the time. Um, No, it's a great question. I mean, there is, it's not an accident that I ended up being a filmmaker. I grew up in New York City on the Upper West Side, exposed to, you know, all different types of people. Um, have never lived a sheltered life, right? It was from the ages of, you know, two years old walking down the street. You see the homeless person next to, you know, the banker going down to Wall Street, right? right? So just always being exposed to different types of people and also just being interested in their stories. And my parents also being photographers. So mm-hmm. they were uh, photojournalists. So they were covering what I what I saw on the street. My dad covered war. He worked at the New York Times for a really long time. And I was just always exposed to their interest in people and um, people that were not like us and how people ended up the way that they were, really, Mm -hmm. in a nutshell. Mm -hmm. So I knew I wanted to be a journalist, Um, definitely not an astronaut, uh, maybe a chef. I love cooking on the side. Um, But no, I really I wanted to go to journalism school and I, I wanted to just start working, to be honest. If I could have skipped college, I probably would have, but my parents didn't let me. Um, yeah, par- parents have a problem with that kind of thing. <laughs> yeah, but to be honest, no one's ever asked me where I went to college. Um, Where'd you go to college? So, Indiana University. <laughs> I, I did want to leave New York, though, because mm-hmm. I'd been here my whole life, like I was saying, and and uh, get outside of you know the Upper West Side and went to Bloomington, Indiana, to the Ernie Pyle School of Journalism and started working for the school newspaper there and um, you know covering the st- kind of stories I still cover to this day. I would go home to New York in the summer and I had all these internships at magazines and I got my first job at People Magazine Mm -hmm. after college uh, covering human interest and true crime stories and did Mm -hmm. that for most of my 20s. So as much as I loved living in New York City, I loved leaving and 
every story I did, it's funny. I don't think I've ever done a story in New York City. You know, it's always in these small. There's towns. no, there's no crime in New York City. No, nothing that interesting. I did go to high school way after the um, the preppy murder, Robert Chambers. So uh -huh. That would have been a, the cover, but he's a lot older than me. Um, and yeah, I came back and that's what I did for like 10 years uh, mm -hmm. until I found a story um, that became Take Care of Maya. So how did you come across this incredible, shocking story? So I was doing research. It was in 2019. I was doing research for another story that I was reporting at, for People Magazine. And I came, yeah, I came across this story in the Sarasota Herald Tribune. And I'd been wanting to leave. I really wanted to get into documentaries, but I had to be, you know, a little bit responsible and not not just quit my job with no idea. So I was looking for that that story. And I read, I read this story by Daphne Chen. It was, you know, it wasn't too long of a story, but it, it kind of just gave the highlights of um, what we all know about this case, um, you know, from like a 30,000 um, foot view. And right away, I said to myself, this is going to be my first documentary. I'm mm. going to sell this to Netflix. This is, I just knew it in my bones, which is something I think I'm pretty good at is, is knowing when a story is, is worth telling to a bigger audience, I think. And I just kind of had all the things that make a really compelling story. But again, like had to do my research just to figure it out. And I called the attorneys that you see in the film, Gregory Anderson and Nick Whitney. And then I flew down to Sarasota that weekend and met with the Kowalski family. Um, and then basically quit my job a couple of months later, mm. knowing that I had to, I had to put all of my energy and heart into this to make it happen. Now, did the story resonate with you because you've personally dealt with illness in your life? Um, yeah, I mean, I was diagnosed with celiac disease at, when I was a kid after mm -hmm. a few years of not knowing um, what was wrong. But I mean, small potatoes compared to Maya Kowalski. I mean, I was right. sick. But I, you know, I was able to go to school every day well, for the most part. Um, but I think, yeah, I mean, years later, thinking about that now, there must have been some part of me that related to Maya in mm -hmm. a way, but I think everyone in life can, when you hear about this story, you think about a time that maybe you were not believed or it took a long time to prove something to someone about yourself. And I, I think that was what kind of made it more relatable mm -hmm. um, in a way, if that mm -hmm. makes sense. Mm -hmm. Now, the, the, before we talk about the film itself, I just want to ask you yeah. some thoughts on the business of filmmaking documentaries in, in particular. It is a bold move to quit a job at a major national publication like People to go make documentaries in this particular time and place that we're in because the industry has changed so much, the players have changed, the opportunities have changed so much. Where do you see the the landscape today for documentary filmmaking? Do you feel it's a great time to become a documentary filmmaker? Or do you, yeah. are, are you sort of running into the wind knowing you're running into the wind? Yeah, it's, I mean, it's a great question. I mean, I found this story, I think it was about five years ago now. So it was actually five years ago. So it was a different time than it is now. I think being really naive helped me out a lot, mm -hmm. um, not knowing really the landscape when I decided to do this. So, right. you know, just being told, I think, and to this day, I do agree, if you have an incredible story, I think despite pretty crazy landscape right now you know they still streamers are still buying content mm -hmm. it's just it's just a different um 
it's just hard. It's really hard right now. Um, so back then, I think it was hard. Now it's even harder. Um, but I think it just kind of motivates me and I think it should other filmmakers as well to to stick with it because, you know, the times are changing and they're going to continue to. But I think if you have a really great idea that's so different than all the others, you they will see that. Mm -hmm. um, the streamers will see that. And I, I think that's kind of what I'm reminding myself now that it's not the time to give up. I think it's time to think about other ways to continue to, um, you know, evolve. Of course, finding ways to make money in the meantime. You know, there's so much downtime between these projects. You mean nobody um, nobody goes into documentary filmmaking to make money? Yeah, right. I thought I was going to be rich. Yeah. No, definitely not. Definitely Med not. school, law, documentary filmmaking. Right? Aren't those the three exactly big, big areas of cash? Yes. Exactly. You know, I mean, basically made minimum wage in the end on that film because, you know, it took so long to make, um, but you don't do it for the money. That's for sure. Mm -hmm. um, if you, you know, I don't think in life you're ever going to get too far. All you care about is money. But I think, um, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a weird time. I mean, Amazon yesterday announced they were laying off a couple hundred employees and, you know, companies are, are merging. It's a scary time. It really is. Um, but, you know, I think I'm confident with the stories that I'm, that I'm working on right now with my, with my company. Um, and just, yeah, trying to push through. Mm -hmm. Well, the industry has changed in terms of like the, the genres of subjects and stories. It's very true crime, which is in your wheelhouse in a, in a way. I won't say Take Care of Maya is a true crime story, but it definitely is under the umbrella of that kind of sensational crime-ish stories. Um, and then, so you got connected with Henry Roosevelt as the director. He did a, a fantastic job. Yeah, I actually know him from my early 20s. We have a mutual friend. Uh, they met, they were both PAs on Law & Order. <laughs> so I feel like it's how most people get into film. It's like everyone was a PA, PA on Law & Order. It's how mo most actors, if you, t if you know actors in New York, they're like, it's like not have they done Law & Order, but it's like how many times yeah. have they been on Law & Order? Exactly. I think he was getting Alec Baldwin like Coca-Colas, I think. Mm -hmm. uh, that's how started his career, Henry. Um, and I just followed his work and just loved everything he did. 6th of June was incredible. It was a short film on mm -hmm. World War II on the day. Um, and when I found the story, I knew that I was not, um, I didn't know anything about this world. I just knew I was a consumer and that I watched every single documentary out there. And I called Henry and he actually at first said, you know, I'm really busy and I can't, I can't take on anything right now. And then I basically texted him like a log line. And I was like, I'm going to think about this and, and write out why I think this is actually important. I just called you and just kind of, you know, it, it wasn't a great pitch the first time I talked to him. And then he was like, holy shit. Okay. We have to do this. I have a meeting with CAA tomorrow. I'm going to bring it up. And that's kind of how it all started. And Rylan Soroff, who he went to high school with, who's an amazing um, filmmaker as well, he came on board. And to this day, it's the three of us. I mean, mm -hmm. more than movies now together, we're like siblings at this point. Mm -hmm. um, and that's, yeah. And then we went to Story Syndicate together. They knew mm -hmm. someone there. Incredible, incredible partner on this. And, and, and that's uh, Dan Kogan and Liz Garbus. Yes. Uh, no small fish in the documentary film space. You know, we're talking Icarus, Harry and Megan, Mayor Pete, like incredible films. It's really interesting to talk about how tough it is in the last several years to make documentary films, but then you just sort of like thrust out of the gate. You wanted to make a film with Netflix. You made a film with Netflix and you made it with two incredible 
filmmakers, producers, do you ever sort of look back on it and go, wow, how did all that happen? (laughs) The way it happened. Yeah. And then it premiered at the Tribeca Film Festival in competition. Mm -hmm. Everyone told me like, that's not how it usually goes. But it was my first. And now the bar is set very high for Mm -hmm. me. Is it? So when you think about it, is it really all about the material? Like if the, the story is so strong and so marketable, that doesn't matter whether you've been making films for 20 years or if you just you know, just started, that it's just finding the right project that not only will be commercial, but appeal to a distributor, uh, an investor. I I really think it is that. I mean, it's not like I came from a background of, you know, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't a hairstylist, right? Like I was working in journalism and I, I was producing, but not a documentary. I was producing like video shoots for People Magazine's TV show. Um, but I think it was that I, I, I knew that because I'd never done this, I really had to prove to them, you know, who I was and also the story at the same time. So I wasn't just going in there saying, oh, I have this great idea. Here's, you know, here's a one pager. It was, here's a 60 page deck. Here's an incredible sizzle reel. And the three of us with Henry Ryle and myself, we did that on our own. So before I quit my job, I started that I was going to story syndicate with everything that they would need to the point where when we pitched it to Netflix, we barely had to even tweak the materials because we spent so long getting our ducks in order and mm-hmm. and giving them no chance to say no and really proving that we had the vision, we had, um, we had the access. So I think for anyone, it's like, yeah, I mean, again, but it had to be an incredible story. And that's still what we're doing now. I think now we're going to partners without a deck in a sizzle because they know us take care of Maya but in the beginning your first time um you just have to go above and beyond which is what I think we did did but you the kn- whole thing was surreal yeah. when you made the pitch did you know in that room that day that they're going to do this with us or did it was it a longer process in terms of getting the green light or did you know right away that you had it with Story Syndicate or Netflix? Netflix. We pitched them during COVID on Zoom. And I remember that day, one of the executives emailed um, John Barden, who's the head of development at Story Syndicate, how much she loved it. And that was a good sign. Um, and he's like, but you never know. They could, you know, so right. many things sure. happen. Um, but no, it's a long process. And then you have lawyers and contracts and budgets mm-hmm. and it's a thing until you sign a dotted line you know anything could happen but we knew from the beginning that they were interested and um it was very scary pitching on zoom the first time uh you know yeah i can't i can't imagine although i guess so much was done on on zoom then that it was normal considered normal you know yeah well it had just started like covid was brand new we were filming during covid Hmm. so everything about this first time for this documentary for me was very unusual i think so i i made a, a documentary and as a documentary filmmaker, I'm very sensitive to spoilers. So when we talk about the film, I'm going to follow your lead because I don't want to give anything away. So why don't you tell us about the film? Yeah. And it's hard not to have spoilers now because I feel like a lot of people have seen it. It came out like July of 2023. Um, no, this is a film about a young girl, Maya Kowalski, who was 10 years old and taken to the emergency room one night at Johns Hopkins All Children's Hospital in St. Petersburg, Florida. Um, in excruciating pain. Um, and basically within hours, her mother, 
Beata was accused of Munchausen syndrome by proxy, uh, so a form of medical child abuse. Mm -hmm. And this film really follows um, the next three months where Maya is taken into state custody and sheltered at the hospital, unable to see her mother, barely see her father. Um, and this big legal battle that really um, that comes from that. And at the same time, uh, exposes a much larger story um, that shows that this is not just happening to the Kowalski family. This is something um, that is quite common. Parents who take their kids into the hospital for help and end up being, you know, part of the system and accused of child abuse. I've seen the movie. It is unbelievable. It blew me away because, A, it's a great film. It's very, very well done. But also as a parent, it's like, I mean, fortunately, I've never had to experience anything like that with my children, but mm -hmm. I was so empathetic and, and just sh shocked by how, as a parent, you can lose control and you can go down this rabbit hole of insanity. And so my first thought was, how prevalent is this? Does this kind of thing happen all the time? But the interesting thing is the reporter you talk about, she ended up finding how many more cases of this kind of treatment by even the same hospital and the same individuals at the hospital. So it was stunning to sort of realize that once her story came out, the floodgates opened and people started contacting her with almost identical stories. Yeah, um, this is a really huge problem. I mean, to this day, so the film came out in July. Um, there was a huge trial that you don't see in the film. I can give that away because this was a highly publicized trial that went on for nine weeks this fall. Um, where the hospital was found liable of every single count um, that was made against them. Um, but since then, since the even during the, the filming of this, when word started to get out, I get messages every single day from, from couples who um, have experienced the exact same thing. And it's, uh, it's difficult because child abuse is, I can't think of a crime worse than child abuse of someone hurting their own child or any child. And it happens. Child abuse is really real. Um, so I think the people that are working in this space have a really, 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 really challenging job. And uh, this kind of shows what happens, you know, at least with this, what this family said, when when they got it wrong. You know, the family really thinks that this was a false accusation. And so do their attorneys and many other people. Um, Maya had been diagnosed with a rare disease, like you said. I mean, many doctors confirmed that. Um, and other doctors didn't think she had it. Mm -hmm. So, you know... It's really challenging to show all the facts in an hour um, and 43 minutes, right? Which was what our film was. But what's really interesting is that the public who became so invested in this story, wanting to know more information, got to watch the trial live on YouTube every day. And they got to actually start to, they got to see what I saw mm -hmm. and what the fellow filmmakers saw and still came to kind of similar conclusions about what they think happened. But it, it's a it's a messy system. You know, it's this is happening all the time and it's it is really scary. That was one of the things that blew me away is like at Johns Hopkins this thing happened. Like it's just insanity. You would you you would think that maybe if you got stuck in some small town, you know, all the cliches and stereotypes that maybe that's where it would happen. This is not the Johns Hopkins you know in Baltimore. They bought this was the reason why it's called Johns Hopkins All Children's Hospital was because it was actually all children's hospital. I, and from what I've heard from a lot of people I've talked to this is not my opinion, but what I've heard is that they never really gave it the Johns Hopkins treatment. Got it. Um, 
it has this flashy name and really fancy building and people take their kids there in Florida as really a destination hospital. Um, but yeah, if you Google Johns Hopkins Children's Hospital, even before Take Care of Maya came out, you're going to see a lot of issues that have um, occurred there. And that's stuff that actually came out towards the end of the trial. Mm -hmm. um, they've been involved in many lawsuits, not just the Kowalski family. So one thing about making documentaries is impartiality. Uh, my film, obviously, was a very personal film, and I didn't need to be impartial because it wasn't an aspect of the film. But with something like this, do you start out impartial, but then as you start to dig in and do the story, does it become impossible to remain impartial? I don't think it becomes, I don't think it becomes impossible at all. I think as a human being, of course, you're going to feel things, but every day I felt something different. You know, I think in the beginning it was, you know, Daphne Chen's story was really about the family, but every day it was thinking about the hospital's point of view and thinking about, like I said earlier, kind of what, what's on the line. Mm -hmm. They don't want to get this wrong. I don't think anyone there had bad intentions. I didn't think, I don't think they said, oh, we we're, you know, we want to falsely accuse someone like, no, that does, I don't think that happens. But I think um, making this film, it was extremely challenging. I took that, I did not take that lightly. Mm -hmm. um, the responsibility that I had knowing that so many people were going to see this. Um, and it was really challenging in the editing room to take something out, to think, well, I want the world to know that, but you know, we have to, et this is a film, right? Mm -hmm. So I was really actually very happy during the trial that people got to see all the stuff that I had spent years digging through. Um, it was really first being a journalist and then a filmmaker. You know, I wanted to get it right, but I don't think at the end of the day, our job was to show who was right and who was wrong. It was to show a deeply emotional, personal story because I don't think anyone involved in this case from both sides would say that this was anything less than a tragedy mm -hmm. without giving everything away. It was an absolute tragedy what happened to this family. It's just both sides have different views on what led to that tragedy. Mm -hmm. um, and that's what we wanted to show. And we tried really hard to interview Dr. Sally Smith in the film, Kathy Beatty, the social worker. We reached out many times for comment. Um, and you see at the end of the film, you know, that she declined to be interviewed, Dr. Sally Smith. But we wanted, we wanted more of that voice. Mm -hmm. Maybe this is kind of a silly question, but why do you think people like Sally Smith declined to participate? I think just publicity is not always a good thing. And Sally Smith especially has been, um, you know, there's a lot of people that have written about her before me, right? That She's been in the media before and it's never really been a positive story. So I think then when you hear that this is going to be, you know, a story syndicate production and you realize what that means and how many millions of people will see this, I could see why someone wouldn't want to speak, but I really wish she had. Um, and yeah, it was, um, it was, I always felt for the Kowalskis, but I tried to be really fair and see both sides to this and what led to these accusations. And that's why it also took years to make this because mm -hmm. I read it through basically every single document. I still have boxes and boxes in my office of, you know, this entire case. How long did it take you to actually shoot? A couple of years also, because it was during COVID, like I was saying. So shoots sometimes had to be pushed. Um, we really wanted the trial to be in the film. Mm -hmm. And for many, it was pushed quite a few times. Um, so actually, in the end, I'm kind of happy that 
the, the trial was not in the film. Um, it's funny how things work out, you know, the way they should, even though if you don't really see that in the moment. Um, so we waited patiently and then just decided eventually, of course, that we had to, we had to put this out there. Mm -hmm. Um, it was a couple years. You see Maya in the movie, you know, Kyle growing up, you know, Maya, um, forgot how old she was when we first met her, but then to see her at the end of the film, she looks like, you know, a grown woman. Yeah. It was like in the beginning. Well, in terms of her role in the film, it seems like it was consciously limited. She's not there a lot. And what was the thinking behind that? Why put her through that? I mean, there were so many depositions where she was already reliving her story. Um, we were so careful about that. I mean, we barely spent any time sitting down with Maya. You see, of course, more B-roll, verite, and things like that. Mm -hmm. But really just like a couple of days of talking to her in total. Um, she went through the most unimaginable thing you could ever experience. And just being really aware, I mean, putting aside being a journalist and a filmmaker, but just being a human being, um, there's no way I'd ever want that personally to, to relive all of that. I wouldn't want my daughter to relive that. And same with Kyle, her brother. Um, so there was so much rich archival material already that we decided to lean into that mm -hmm. because those hard questions were already asked. Mm -hmm. Was that a big consideration when you set out to make the film? Like how much archival is there? Is that so important yeah. in documentaries? Oh my, it's the first question I ask. Anyone reaches out to me, they have an idea. I'm like, what's the archival? Right. <laughs> um, because so many of these stories have already happened. I mean, the quality right. story was continuing to happen, but, um, Archival, I mean, Beata Kowalski, her mother, recorded every single phone call. I really think if we didn't have those recordings and we didn't have the archive, I don't think I would have been as confident in this film. That's what got me really excited. Mm -hmm. Excited is the wrong word. But knowing that we could really retell this story and bring this story to life through, through audio. Um, there wasn't much archival home video at all, um, but... There was, of course, I mean, we got access to every single deposition and I watched every single deposition. Mm -hmm. uh, so knowing that um, was a great blessing to have, but then of course also very difficult because then you have more to work with and more to choose from, which can be really challenging. Mm -hmm. um, but that's a big part of Take Care of Maya and I think also why people really felt so deeply because they really felt like they were part of this story. How many hours of footage did you have? Oh my God, hundreds of hours. Mm. I had all on hard drives, things that would never be able to, you know, just fit on my computer, Dropbox accounts. Yeah, hundreds of hours between audio and video. And then everything we shot, we shot this to death. I mean, it was like, again, not so much with the family, but you see beautiful shots driving around Florida. It's like, well, we did that 20 times. <laughs> and that's a lot of Henry Roosevelt and our director of photography, Patrick Gennady, who really, they're both so incredible, really cared about every single shot. I mean, mm. to the last day of editing, it's like, well, let's replace this beauty shot with that mm. one, or the lightning is striking there. That looks better than that lightning. It was uh, a piece of art at the end of it, I think, as well. Well, that Not kind of B-roll is so important because it expands, it, it takes a story that's, in a sense, very small and contained, and it just helps to visually open it. How long did it take to edit with all that footage? Um, I mean, we started editing, you know, when, when footage started to come in, we already started to think about the mm -hmm. edit. Uh, first editor who was with us for most of it, who's incredible. We're actually working on another project with him right now. Pax Wasserman, he edited Cartel Land. Incredible, incredible. 
uh, Jawad Mitney, all these incredible editors came on board pretty early on. Um, and I would say that was, I mean, that took over a year yeah. of editing, I would say. Um, yeah. And then we took some breaks, you know, we went down to shoot again. And, um, but even before we were starting to actually edit, it was coming up with the entire story structure. Uh, and Pax is brilliant at that. I mean, beat by beat, how we saw this film looking. And then, mm -hmm. of course, that changed as you actually shoot and realize where the story is going. Um, but editing was always something we thought about. I mean, music is something we thought about from mm -hmm. the very beginning. Um, we really cared about that. We had incredible original composers. Um, so yeah, it was, everything was a long process. Mm -hmm. And when you set out to make the film to, to the point you were just making, did you have any strong sense of where it was going or like with a lot of documentaries, you just, you know, kind of follow the footage as some people say. Um, some of the great films, uh, you know, capturing the Freedmans is a perfect example of that where you start off making a film about birthday clowns and look where, where it goes. It's like, that is just amazing when that happens. How much of that played into this film with you and the team? Yeah, we had no clue how this was going to end. And I think, you know, the trial and the outcome, um, we knew from the very beginning, even when we pitched Netflix, we said we might not have the trial. We don't think the verdict actually really matters. This story, this family story, those facts, that's, that's how we see this story playing out. I think the verdict was something we thought, it's just a nice conclusion, right? For someone to know, well, what is what is the court of law? What do they think? Right. You know, what's, what's the real conclusion here? Um, and I think it worked out well in the end that it wasn't part of this film because mm -hmm. that was their truth. Their truth was that this was continuing to get pushed. And I think that's why the world was so angry because they just wanted them to have their day in court. Um, so we didn't see how this movie was going to end. You know, we just knew that we wanted to um, retell what happened. Mm -hmm. But when I talked about that story, you know, the storyboard and everything. That was always kind of like act one and act two. We never had any idea really till the end what act three was going to look like. Mm -hmm. uh, and also during this time, depositions were still continuing to come in and the story was changing. We were mm -hmm. learning so that always shifted things mm -hmm. um, because this case was very much very alive, you know, during the process of of um, of this film. And do you personally continue to get a lot of feedback and correspondence from people, people suggesting, you know, story ideas to you like, oh, I have a situation that is crazy that you should make a film about. I, I always love when people you know tell you what your next film should be, but um, do you get a lot of that every from day. people? <laughs> every day. And it's like, now I think my beat is just like children and families. You know, it's like, I, I can't say the other project I'm working on right now, but it's like, I seem to gravitate towards these stories of um, how hard it is to create a family, how hard it is to have a family, keep it together, mm -hmm. um, what can go wrong. And I, I don't know, it's all within like the whole family court system. But I think now people reach out to me thinking that I can help them right. get their back, um, divorce cases, custody <laughs> case, every adoption, everything under the sun. They're like, Caitlin Keating, help me. So that's really challenging. Maybe that's the title Probably. of your next film. Caitlin Keating, help me. Oh, my God. People are making cameras just me. they just follow you around as you go through America helping people. Yeah, right. Right now. As a producer, how passionate do you have to be about a subject 
to make the investment to spend the next two, three, four years. I mean, that kind of compulsion, that passion that just you need to tell this story. And is it easy to yeah. come across those stories? It's not. Like the story that I'm, I'm, we're pitching soon, I'm actually hopefully going to be co-directing with um, someone else. I guess I can't say their name yet. Um, but I mean, I can't speak for other producers and directors, but I can't imagine taking this on, this really creative, all-encompassing role. I mean, it's not a nine-to-five job, right? right? So I can't imagine anyone saying like, oh, yeah, I think this is an okay story. Let me do mm -hmm. it. I mean, I truly become obsessed. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, people are like, Caitlin, you need to take care of yourself too. Like, I, I can't plan a vacation because I'm like, well, I can't, you know, those two weeks I need to be doing the development for the next project. Like, I become obsessed when I think it's a really good idea and I rarely feel that way. And the one that I'm developing now is how I felt when I found Take Care of Maya. Mm. So that's now that I can compare it to that. That's when I'm like, okay, I think we have something really special here. And, you know, it's, it's not just the story of one family. That to me is not as interesting. It's, it has to be something that could speak to a lot of people. Mm -hmm. um, it's to be something that highlights a really important issue or topic, but told through it a very, you know, a very emotional, personal story. I think mm -hmm. that's the way that kind of captivate an audience. But yeah, I don't know if everyone's as crazy as I am with, <laughs> with stories, but I feel really deeply about the ones that I pursue. Because I mean, our time on life is limited. We don't know how long we have. Right. And if you're up to four years working on a project i mean it's like almost half of a decade that it goes by so quickly so um and slowly at the same time so um yeah i think now we're trying to figure out how to work on a few projects at once because that was our first baby you know take care of maya and we wanted to put all of our energy um and heart and soul into that project but i think now to really create a business you got to figure out how to do a few at the same time yeah i once said to ken burns how do you make such diverse films? And he was like, they're not diverse. They're all the same. And I was like, baseball, Civil War, this, that. Like, and he goes, it's all about America. It's all mm. about America and the people in it. And, and it really was an eye-opener for me because he's just telling a different piece of America with each film that he makes. Uh, really, that's, that's really beautiful. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of how I feel about these stories too. It's it's, it's a different topic, but at the end of the day, the way that these people feel from what's happening to them is the same, mm. you know, it's, if that makes any sense, it's, it's, um, well, you can find yeah. the commonality in, in the subjects could be so different, but is to what Ken was mm -hmm. saying, as long as there's <clears throat> that same spine, a same kind of yeah. commonality, then the stories are all connected in, in, a, in a macro sense does really, it's very does nar do narratives appeal to you at all is they that do yeah and that's something we're thinking about as well and and stories that are you know based off of um true stories mm -hmm. um because some stories i find I'm like oh that would have been a great documentary but no one's alive anymore you know or there is no audio the the archive doesn't really exist but boy would that be an incredible story so yeah. we're exploring some of those as well i've thought about that when I was making my film, I kept thinking like, oh my God, this would be so much easier if I had a script. This would be so much easier if it was a narrative. Okay, just, you know, shoot it, you know? Today we're shooting these yeah. six pages. That, but um, they are so... Do you think you can make that, that adjustment in your head emotionally to, to go between those types of uh, two different genres of film? 
I, I think so. Yeah. Um, but I think I want to do some more docs before mm-hmm. I really dive into that. Um, Henry, I know is really, that's, that's his next step. You know, it's the three of us within this company wise school, but we all have different goals and dreams and his is really to get into scripted. So it's how do we grow as a company and how do we grow personally? Right. Um, same time. So he, yeah, he's, but he's been doing docs for longer than I have. So, um, but I, yeah, I think just, I love real people and I love real stories. I don't, one day I would love to work with actors, but that probably is also has its own set of challenges. Uh, <laughs> oh, I'm sure it does. <laughs> uh, um, my, my last question is one I'm, yeah. I'm almost certain you haven't been asked in this process. And that is that we here in the back room, we like to get a window into people's souls, you know, who they are as a person. And one way to do that is through music. So give me your top five musical artists of all time. My God, that's a great question. Um, Bob Dylan. Oh, I love you. <laughs> that was my dad's favorite. Um, who are my top fish? My God, I listen to him constantly. Um, Neil Young. More love. Another one of my mm-hmm. dad's. Mm-hmm. Um, I know this is like so cheesy. Now, but this Adele. would be cool if you then said Pitbull, also my dad's favorite. <laughs> no, I just, exactly. That'd be funny. Um, so cheesy, but Adele. Mm-hmm. Love Adele. Um, my sister, who you don't know who she is yet, but Emily Keating, she's one of my favorite musicians of all time. She actually has an album coming out soon. Oh, uh, great. She's absolutely incredible. Um, and who would my fifth be? Uh, that's a great question. I can't think. My favorite. <clears throat> Beatles. <clears throat> okay, sure. Beatles. <laughs> I didn't. I don't want to influence you. Definitely top 10. I, just Beatles, call, I had something in my throat. I... Yeah. And then mixed in with, you know, top 40 uh-huh. on Spotify when I'm at the gym. So in mm-hmm. a wide range. Mm-hmm. That's a good <laughs> list. I, I like that list. I like your dad's musical tastes. Um, there you go. So, Caitlin, this was a great conversation. I really appreciated hearing about the film and you. And I wish you a lot of luck with the film going forward and whatever you. Uh, projects you embark on. I think whatever you do is going to be successful. That's my guess. Thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure talking to you. All righty. Take care. Bye. This episode of The Back Room was edited and produced by me, Andy Ostroy. It was co-edited and co-produced by Maddie Rosenberg and co-produced by Jen Hamoud. Our theme song was composed by Andrew Hollander and our logo was designed by Cricket Langell. And special thanks to Patricia Wind. Please take a moment to rate and review the podcast and also follow or subscribe. Until next time, keep your eyes on Washington, Hollywood, and your own backyards and have a great week.